Hi, I'm Tish. This is episode 76 of The Doctor's Companions, a Doctor Who rewatch podcast. Uh, Juliana is not here. It's just me to do this quick little intro because this is the recording of our panel from Ottawa Comic Con 2019, The Historic Women of Doctor Who. It was great. We had fun. The audience was great. Hopefully you can hear a little bit. It's very quiet, but you can hear some of the discussions happening at the end. Uh, We were just recording with an iPhone on the table in front of us again, so you can hear us. Hopefully you can hear some of the discussions. They're pretty great. Other than that, I just want to say again that we are taking a break from the straight up rewatch of Doctor Who. Um, we're going to be doing, still re-watching episodes, but not like in order. We're going to do some episodes by theme or by character or talk about companions or baddies or science fiction. I don't know. Um, so give us some ideas for that if you want to tell us what to do. I mean, we won't necessarily do it just because you tell us, but give us some ideas. Um, the usual way, Twitter, email, whatever. Give us some ideas. So that's What's coming next is some different stuff before we get back into a straight-up rewatch. So, anyway, enjoy the panel. Here you go. Hi. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Tish. I'm Juliana. And we host The Doctor's Companions, the Doctor Who Rewatch podcast. Uh, We love The Doctor, as I'm assuming most of you do also. (laughs) Yes. Of course, uh, we're also able to be critical of Doctor Who when it counts. And uh, we're kind of like that with all of our media. It's a bit of a side effect of podcasting. So uh, the women of Doctor Who is a really natural topic for us to come to because we get to talk about two of our favorite things. And we wanted to dive into the really intriguing particular type of women on Doctor Who, and that's the real women of Earth history. So Doctor Who is such a fantastical show with so much of its content being completely made up that when the showrunner and the writers choose to draw from real life, it deserves notice because now it's more than just entertainment. It's um, also, you can't draw from real history and events and people without it being at least in part educational. And from there it gets complicated, as we'll talk about. When you're inserting fiction into history, you don't know what your audience will take as fact or fiction. It's a careful line to tread. With each woman in each episode, the fiction affects her life differently, both in terms of historical accuracy and our perception of that woman. Uh, A big inspiration for the topic was season 11 when they announced they were doing the Rosa Parks episode. a little almost dangerous topic to take on, especially given she's such a huge icon of the civil rights movement and perhaps some of the political, uh, you know, (laughs) in current uh, climates. Um, But it got us thinking about the type of women that the doctor visits and how their history was told through each episode and also whether their stories are helped or hindered by this program. So the first thing I wanted to know when we chose this topic was the stats. I wanted to know how many historical figures have been on Doctor Who, how many in classic, how many in New Who, and how many of them were women. So I couldn't find a complete and total list online, so feel free to correct me, but what I did find from various lists is 23 historical figures that have appeared throughout the entire series, nine in classic Who and 14 in New Who. 
If anyone has the stats on Classic Who in their head, feel free <laughs> to correct me. But I could find only two women for Classic Who. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I has a very brief appearance, and Catherine de Medici uh, appears in what is now a lost story. Um, in New Who, we've seen six historical women among the 14 total, so not exactly gender parity. But considering who writes history, men, that ratio perhaps suggests uh, an effort has been made to make sure that not all the historical visits are to men, because that would be easy to let happen. So we're going to focus on the six historical women in New Who, because we're not super experts on classic. <laughs> and uh, we should have time left, hopefully, for some questions and discussion at the end also. Yeah. So first up, Queen Elizabeth I is the only historical woman with repeat appearances on Doctor Who. Her first appearance is merely just an appearance in an early episode with the first Doctor. In New Who, she has another brief appearance, um, but an actual interaction with the 10th Doctor in the Shakespeare Code. In that episode, she's 66 years old in 1599 and declares him sworn enemy of the crown and off with his head. <laughs> Then we learned why she's so mad at him in the 50th anniversary special when the 10th Doctor actually marries Elizabeth in 1562. Although he didn't intend to go through with it when he proposed, he thought she was a Zygon. In this episode, she has an actual companion-like role in which she proves herself to be, well, first and foremost, just head over heels for the Doctor, but also an impressive, intelligent woman who can handle herself under pressure. And as we'll discuss with each of these historical women, the ability for the show to actually insert fictional events into their lives kind of depends on the historical record of her life. Elizabeth sits somewhere in the middle. She lived long enough ago that we don't have every detail of her personal life, so the writers have some space to play. However, she didn't live so long ago that we have no record of her history whatsoever. So Elizabeth I was Queen of England and Ireland from 1558 until her death in 1603. That was 44 years. Uh, Elizabeth's reign, of course, became known as the Elizabethan era, and it was known for such figures as William Shakespeare and Francis Drake. And it was pretty good times for England, not all great, but she was considered like a good ruler, generally speaking. And she also earned the nickname the Virgin Queen on account of her decision to never marry. Yeah, there are plenty of jokes and references to the Doctor and the Virgin Queen, which I don't think are really that funny to joke about a woman's sexual experience or lack of. Um, and doing my research, I found that there was a time in her life, some incidents in her youth that you can research on your own, I won't get into, but they very well may have traumatized her or at the very least affected how she would view sexual relationships with men. But who's to say? I don't know her personally. But this part of her life is clearly ignored by the writers of Doctor Who, who keep making these jokes in poor taste, I think. At age 25, Mary Tudor dies and Elizabeth becomes queen. So the big question, of course, is who will she marry? And she had suitors and she also had interests. However, for one reason or another, political mainly, she never did marry. So does this mean that she was, as we call her, a virgin queen? I could not possibly know. No one could possibly know. Uh, it's kind of her own business, you guys. But uh, of all of the great things to happen during the Elizabethan era, the fact that her nickname ends up being the Virgin Queen and that's what she gets stuck with is kind of kind of crummy. I kind of blame men for that a little bit because they write history. Yeah. <laughs> 
Elizabeth is the first of a few historical women to appear in Doctor Who whose character is based, in part at least, on her sexuality. Elizabeth was chosen because of her virgin reputation, and that remains the core of her appearances and certainly the references. And when she does get enough screen time, enough to establish a character, her role and her personal choices are based on her feelings for the Doctor, which makes her just another young woman enamored with the Doctor, and it makes the Doctor even more special, like he landed the unmarriable woman. And so this starts our talk with the premise of all of these women just being all over the doctor. And it is not all the historical women we're going to talk about today. However, it is more than just historical women. We do see it with companions and would-be companions as well throughout the series. Uh, and we're wondering if this dynamic will change now that the woman is a doctor. <laughs> or perhaps with Chibnall running the show, if it'll be different. Uh, because generally the Virgin No More kind of references with Queen Elizabeth I began with Moffat's first season. And so maybe we're done with those jokes. Mm. We are going to move on to a queen, <laughs> however, who has no interest in getting it on with the doctor in any way. Queen Victoria. Uh, this time it's Queen Victoria who gets tangled up with my favorite doctor, Ten. Does anyone else here love Ten the most? Okay, because he's the best. No offense. <laughs> so Queen Victoria was the longest reigning queen in British history, sitting on the throne for a whopping 63 years, although she's re recently surpassed by Queen Elizabeth II. She also brought in the Victorian era, the central years which Historians consider Britain's golden years, ushering in a time of prosperity, industrialization, global trade, engineering, great times. It was also a time of peace, both at home and abroad for the most part. And all of this makes Queen Victoria an obvious choice of a historical character to choose to build an episode around. It was her lesser known eccentricities, however, that they kind of focus on with this. Uh, spiritualism and specifically communing with the dead. Uh, and the idea of the supernatural gained uh, huge popularity during the Victorian era, and the Queen and her husband Albert were no exception to this. The 19th century also saw a rise of new mediums of spiritualism, like Ouija boards and tarot cards became popular, also practices like spirit photography and seances. And the Queen actually joined her husband Albert in seances from time to time, and she actually continued the practice after his death in 1861. Uh, with the rise of technology and scientific progress that happened in the Victorian era, it almost seems like a strange time to have such a rise in spiritualism. However, historians believe that because spiritualism really helped to connect people to a more personal aspect of life, with the industrialization going on, they think that's actually the reason for the rise of spiritualism. So it is with all this context that we look at the successes and failures of the Tooth and Claw episode. The episode itself is quite accurate to the history of the Queen. The doctor states that it's 1879. After the death of Albert in 1861, she did dress in black for the rest of her life, which we see. In the episode, she's traveling to Balmoral Castle in Scotland, which was one of Albert's favorite residences. She also states that she is used to staring down the barrel of a gun, which is an allusion to the many assassination attempts she faced over her reign. And the doctor introduces her as the Empress of India, which reminds viewers of the huge, expansive empire Britain had at the time. As the werewolf story kind of unfolds, things get slightly less evidential. Uh, um, the writers chose a really good time in Victoria's life, however, to focus the story. After Albert's death in 1861, she made very few public appearances, so it really gives the writers like a space in her life that they can create 
ideas of what she may have been up to. And they did use actual residences that she frequented to build the story on. The wolf bite being passed down through the family and revealing itself as hemophilia B is a really cool detail. Queen Victoria uh, did possess the hemophilia gene, and her youngest son, Leopold, was actually affected by the disease, as well as her two daughters, Alice and Beatrice, being carriers of it. Only her descendants had the disease, and so the most likely explanation is spontaneous hemophilia, which actually does account for about a third of all cases, especially if the father's older, which in this case he was. However, a werewolf curse is a much more fun explanation. (laughs) So this episode is really successfully built around the queen, bringing in elements of her personal life, her family, as well as the Victorian times that blended science and spiritualism. For all these reasons, despite it not being a favorite episode of ours, we think it's a great example of letting the character and her world really ensure the episode feels true to life, but still has plenty of Doctor Who fun. And the episode portrays the Queen as serious, independent-minded, and a strong woman. She's constantly refusing to be shielded by her guards. She questions the Doctor, and she's not afraid to invoke her title if she needs to. The story also pulls many true things from her life that are supported by historical evidence. However, considering our particular slant on this, we need to note that it's her husband, Albert, who's kind of at the center of the episode, and it's his penchant for the occult and spiritualism that serves as the core of the episode. And it's his friends and places he loved to visit that were introduced to. So you have this wonderful historical figure who has huge accomplishments in her life, but it's her husband who we're kind of focusing on. And I do understand that they probably wanted the supernatural element, so practically it was a good way to make it work, use her real affection for her husband and, you know, Albert's actual interests to anchor it. So we're going to move on to a woman who also loved a king but was not a queen. Madame de Pompadour. Yeah. Uh, So Jeanne-Antoinette Poisson, my French is so great, Uh, or as the doctor refers to her, Madame Poisson, later Madame Etoile, later still Louis XV, mistress of Louis XV, uncrowned queen of France, actress, artist, musician, dancer, courtesan, fantastic gardener. We'll come back to that description. In the episode Girl in the Fireplace, the doctor and Rose and Mickey pop into Annette's life for short visits. Uh, Her life is accessible through time portals on a space station where androids are trying to access her just at the right time. Uh, The episode is structured around her timeline, so we're actually just going to take a quick glance through her life, see where the show fits itself in and how accurate it is. Hopefully you can read that a bit. Uh, So 1721, she is born. And the first time the doctor visits her, she says it's 1728, which would make her seven years old. Um, However, this is our first correction to this episode. She would have been away at school at that age, and she would not have had the nickname Renette yet. Um, She came home from school at age nine with a whooping cough, and then it was after that time her mother took her to a fortune teller who predicted that the young girl would one day reign over the heart of a king. So that's where she got the nickname Renette, which means little queen. Uh, The next is the doctor's third visit and the kiss between them. We don't have an exact year. Uh, It's sometime before she's married. She is only a teenager, and she's only seen this strange man as a child. So, like, the kissing, kind of weird, but... All these women are horny for the doctor. (laughs) Yeah, so in 1740, at 19 years old, she gets married to a very French name that I won't try to pronounce. Uh, They have a son who sadly dies in infancy, and then they have their daughter, Alexandrine, who will also sadly die young. Uh, 
And next in 1744, we see her quickly discussing that the king's mistress is ill and that she might take the position. Um, This conversation, had it happened, could only have happened between November 25th and December 8th of that year. So small correction, because it wouldn't have been summertime at Versailles. But (laughs) Details. Yeah. All right, the next big scene is the doctor and Rose and Mickey are all peeking into a room where Renette and the king are meeting for the first time. Uh, and then that's when he comes out and reads her mind and she reads his mind, it's a big moment. However, that is not how they met at all. Um, as it says in the timeline, in 1745, when she was 24 years old, she became Louis XV's official chief mistress and was given the title Marquise de Pompadour because she needed a title to be in court. It was the year before, though, that they first met. So in uh, 1700s France, the royal party would go hunting and like other nobility who had estates near there could go hunting with them, but they had to follow behind them. I don't really care about hunting, but the point is, Renette knew what she wanted. She wanted to get the king's attention. So she had a little carriage, so she rode up in front of him so he would see her. And first she passed by once in a little pink carriage wearing a blue dress, and then in a blue carriage wearing a pink dress. And apparently the king liked this because he sent her a gift of venison. And then uh, he already had a mistress at the time, which we discussed. She got sick and she died. And then Renette gets an invitation to a masked ball. And there he unmasked himself and declared his feelings for Renette. And she was dressed as Diana the Huntress, a reference to their meeting in the forest. And I just think that's a super cool scene and someone should make that movie because that is adorable. (laughs) Next in 1751, uh, Renette's 30 years old, and it's the end of the mistress relationship. And this is correct. She was not the mistress until her death. Uh, They did end their sexual relationship, but she remained really close friends with the king and a political advisor. Renette was later made a duchess and eventually one of the queen's ladies-in-waiting, which in French court was super high position. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next scene we see in the episode, uh, Rose is coming to tell Renette that in five years they're going to come after your 37th birthday. So that would have been 1753. Also that year, sadly, her daughter dies at just nine years old. And just 11 days later, her father passes away. Um, In no doubt, in part due to his heartbreak over losing his beloved granddaughter, who's very close with her. Um, And this tragic loss for Renette, of course, changes her, and she's never the same. But none of this is mentioned in the episode, because why focus on sad things like children and death when you can just be a sexy little mistress? All right, then the big scene. She's 37 years old, so the androids come for her. It's another masked ball, because they love those in the 1700s. However, uh, they incorrectly have her pronounce to introduce the doctor to King Louis that this is my lover, the king of France, which of course he wasn't, he hadn't been for like eight years. And I don't think they would have ever used the word lover since mistress is an official court position, it's not this scandalous affair. Um, And the doctor does explain this in the episode to Rose, um, but then the episode continues to contradict that and play up this scandalous sexy mistress thing. Lastly, in 1764, Renette was 42 years of age and she dies and the doctor, of course, comes back and it is too late and it's super sad at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. So the episode takes place throughout her whole life and Renette did some super awesome things in her life, but the show really only focuses on the one aspect of her being the king's mistress and it doesn't even portray that super accurately as we discussed. The doctor does explain what being a mistress means in French court, but they continue to portray Renette as a sexy, scandalous, brazen other woman. 
And for a long time after, when the, uh, she was indeed the mistress of the king. But the doctor is right to be excited to meet Madame de Pompadour and be impressed with her. Even before she was the official chief mistress, she was a patron of the arts. She played a central role in making Paris the capital of taste and culture in Europe. She attended and held salons, which included guests like Voltaire. She supported many artists. She was the subject of their works. Later in life, she created her own art, like engraved prints, and she learned gemstone engraving. She bought a porcelain factory just to support <laughs> the porcelain industry, and she was an accomplished stage actress. I could find no mention of courtesan or fantastic gardener. I'm sure that uh, she was great at gardening if she wanted to do it, but she's certainly not a courtesan. No offense to sex workers, but she was not one. That's not what being the king's mistress is at all. Um, and it's just another way that this episode plays up her sexuality for no reason. She's interesting enough without it. Look at all these things she did throughout her life. And it just keeps coming back to her being the mistress, even when she's not really the mistress. Um, and it's not the thing that would impress the doctor, being a sexy courtesan. Um, he's really impressed like when he reads her mind and she looks back into his mind like, that's amazing, and that's what's really impressive about her, but the episode just keeps going back to mistress. Yeah. We're not going to get into how much <laughs> we hate the fact that the doctor is ready to just leave Rose for Renette, because that could be an entire other panel for me. Uh, <laughs> but we are going to move on to another accomplished woman in the world of arts who impresses the doctor with keen intellect and sharp wit. Agatha Christie. Uh, in stark contrast to some of the other we women that we've looked at. Uh, this is a really special episode because of Christie's actual history. In 1926, Agatha Christie did go missing. All police could find was her car. There was a really extensive manhunt. It took thousands of volunteers, over a thousand police officers. They had hounds out, and they even called in other mystery authors, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Dorothy Sayers, to help try and find Agatha Christie. Uh, no luck. She did appear 11 days later after being spotted at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel, registered as Teresa Neal, the surname of her husband's mistress. Oh, snap. Despite reappearing, Agatha Christie would claim for the rest of her life that she had no recollection of that time, so it remains a mystery till today. Of course, there were many theories, none of which included a Vespa form murdering based on her stories. <laughs> But the Doctor Who writers used this lost 11 days to have free reign in creating a story using Agatha Christie. With no exact details during that time, the writers really get to create any story that they want to with Agatha. So my favorite thing about this episode is actually the structure of it. It's structured just like a Christie novel. It helps to give insight into her as a historical real person through the creation of the episode itself. Uh, so Agatha Christie cemented what's now classic mystery structure, the idea that a murder is committed, there's multiple suspects, all with secrets, and the detective unravels these secrets, revealing the biggest and most shocking twist towards the end. And of course, watching this episode, the structure deliberately follows that. And the table was set for the character of Agatha in this episode with the affair that Colonel Christie, her first husband, had, and it's brought up really quickly. So it lets the audience know it's maybe a harder time in her life. She's probably not super happy about it. And the doctor mentions it. However, Christie's own words like, the thrill is in the chase, never in the capture, and is he needed? Can't a woman make her own way in the world? Probably would have sufficed to reveal her circumstances. 
Like a reflection of the true story when cops got help from mystery writers to try and find Agatha, the doctor implores Agatha herself to help discover not just the murderer of Professor Peach in the library with the lead pipe, but also the cat burglar, the unicorn. And Agatha uses her keen senses, her intellect, and imagination to unravel the mysteries, and through their partnership, Donna accidentally inspires her novel, Murder on the Orient Express, and the character Miss Marple. And apparently the Vespa form and the Doctor also inspired her novel, Death in the Clouds. Uh, the episode's pretty light in tone, and that's partly due to the pure joy that the Doctor and Donna always have together. Did everyone get to see Catherine Tate earlier? Yes. She is so amazing. She's, so <laughs> uh, she's our favorite companion, so... Uh, given the real-life circumstances, especially considering the disappearance of Agatha Christie is often linked with a suicide attempt, I almost wonder if the episode's not serious enough. I mean, it certainly doesn't focus on mental health issues, nor would I necessarily expect it to. However, kind of a missed opportunity in media. And it is her accomplishments that are celebrated, if perhaps somewhat diminished, Obviously, all of her most wonderful ideas have to be inspired by the Doctor and Donna, and this is something that they do often with historical figures, and not just women, with all of them. And I understand that it's an easy way to weave the Doctor into historical fiction by making him the inspiration for things. We do see it happen with uh, Dickens and Shakespeare also. So it's a fun story overall, but it's really the structure that shines in this episode. And it's going to bring us to a flash to the ancient, ancient past with another super awesome queen. Queen Nefertiti. She's hot for the dock. She's ready to adventure. She has no time for misogyny. She's prepared to sacrifice herself to save others. And she's super bored with her husband. But is she really? Queen Nefertiti lived over 3,000 years ago, so we can't know what she was really like as a person. But here's what we do know about her. She lived circa 1370 to 1330 BC. She was an Egyptian queen, great royal wife, chief consort of the Pharaoh Akhenaten. Um, there are a lot of maybes when trying to figure out an ancient Egyptian's life. Uh, what archaeologists do find are from hieroglyphs, so there's room for interpretation. What they do, what they have gathered about Nefertiti is that she's often depicted as equal to her husband or even doing things that a pharaoh could only do. And she's shown smiting the enemy and captive enemies decorate her throne. So basically she was a badass bitch. The couple is depicting kissing in public, which suggests they had an actual romantic loving relationship, which was an anomaly back then when marriage was usually about power, sometimes incestuous. She possibly ruled as pharaoh after her husband's death. She disappears from records, but they believe that she actually became the pharaoh's co-regent towards the end of his reign, and after his death was, in fact, Neferneferatin, definitely pronounced that well, um, who ruled after Akhenaten. Her death has a lot of theories, but as no mummy has been identified as hers, we don't really know what happened. The only thing that we can actually say that they got wrong in this episode is uh, the comment about her husband being the male equivalent to a sleeping potion. I understand we have to make up a personality from scratch. We don't have any record of that. But the one thing that we can say is that she probably had a loving relationship with her husband. So why did they contradict that? Is this just a way to get her to be with, of all people, Riddell in the end? Because we... We do not like Riddell. He's misogynistic, he is disrespectful to women, and she's disrespectful to a queen no less. So why make her choose to stay with him? We're going to come back to that. 
Uh, other than that, we think that she's portrayed the way most Nephi fans would like to see her, a powerful, intelligent, boss black woman. She is up for an adventure. She takes in all the new technology like it's no thing, and spaceships or dinosaurs, she can handle it. When shit hits the fan, she's the one ready to give up her freedom to save others. She's a true queen. However, she still never gives up her autonomy, and she refuses to be treated as an object. So why Nefertiti? Of all women of history, why has she lasted in our culture? Well, there's a famous bust depicting her. It's one of the most well-known pieces of ancient art. So we actually have a visual to carry on with this very ancient person. Uh, her equal power in ruling with her husband also makes her unique. She was a powerful black woman who stood equal to a man. And she hasn't been portrayed in media as much as, say, Cleopatra. So the Doctor Who writers were on their own creating a character. And the first thing they write to introduce this powerful lady, lady of two lands, lady of all women, oh, she's super horny for the doctor. <laughs> and frankly, she deserves better. Like, this is a terrible introduction, and then the ending with Riddell. It's a bit of a disservice to the legacy of Nefertiti. Um, they could have just focused on her confidence and her intelligence, which they do show throughout the episode, but they choose to bookend her journey with desire for men and not even her own husband. What little evidence we do have shows that Nefertiti and her husband had a successful partnership. There's no evidence to suggest that the marriage was anything but fruitful, yet she's portrayed as wanting out of the relationship. And then, as we previously stated, we have Queen Victoria, also in a successful marriage, and her episode kind of revolves around Albert. So we're wondering why the disparity in these portrayals. Both women were queens during very prosperous times for their respective empires. And is it just because we have more evidence of, for Queen Victoria and it's easier to change ancient history? Or is this simply a difference between Davies' historical women and Moffat's portrayals? I'm inclined to say to blame Moffat. Um, Elizabeth <laughs> Renette and Nefertiti all have something in common with many other female characters on the show. They're all hot for the dock. That's my new phrase. <laughs> and I do blame Moffat. Madame de Pompadour was his episode. The Virgin Queen jokes and references start with his first season as showrunner. The other Russell T. Davies historical women don't care about the doctor at all in that way. Moffat also made Amy want to make out with the doctor, and he created River Song, the horniest of them all. And I love River, I love River and Eleven, like flirting, it's so cute, but my god, if she doesn't make my point. In addition to the references to Elizabeth the Virgin Queen, there are plenty of other references to the doctor being with historical women, which feels to me like Doctor Who writers, most of whom are men, like living vicariously through the doctor, like throwing in these mentions of famous conquests that they wish they could have done. Um, it looks like that's changed though with the 13th Doctor, um, but is it because she's a woman? Is it because the new showrunner? I mean, Chibnall did write the Nefertiti episode, but I assume things will probably change. Um, so we arrive at the most recent, both historically and most recent episode with a historical woman to meet the Doctor, Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks is an incredibly woman to tackle for a storyline as her life, and particularly the time they visit, is so ingrained in history. It's been deconstructed practically frame by frame, and the day that she chose not to move on that bus in Alabama has been looked at in such excruciating detail, down to the minute, and pretty much every moment, every movement that Rosa made that day is uh, documented in history. So this creates a really 
strange and whole new set of parameters that the writers have to adhere to, unlike the freedom that they had in episodes like uh, Agatha Christie or Nefertiti, and even to some extent the two queens, uh, they have a main character that has really firm times and places, and it creates a lot of limits for the Doctor Who writers. However, sometimes limitations can breed good writing, good storytelling. This episode was widely considered the strongest in a somewhat mediocre season, and largely due to the complex societal issues and the emotional core to the episode. Yeah, because they're also tackling a very provocative topic in this episode, and addressing racial injustices past and present is super important. It can be really risky in a show because if dealt with incorrectly, it can come off as patronizing, politicizing, or even eroding Rosa Parks' actual accomplishments. Well, the first really positive note we have for this episode is who they had writing it. Mallory Blackman, who wrote this episode with Chris Chibnall, is the first black writer on Doctor Who. So yeah, this show has diversity problems. Blackman is also only one of only six women who have written only 10 episodes of the 146 episodes in the new series. So it's a big yikes, guys. (laughs) The story was uh, really accurate to Rosa Parks' history. Don't think they have much choice, but (laughs) using her timeline as the focus of the episode. She was a 42-year-old seamstress who on December 1st, 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, took a seat in the middle of the bus just behind the front white section and at the next stop when more passengers got on and every seat in the white section was full, the bus driver ordered the black passengers in the middle row to stand so a white man could sit and she of course refused. This would lead to the boycott of the Montgomery Public Transit that lasted 381 days and became the first large-scale demonstration of the civil rights movement. Go Rosa. Yeah. So the story revolved not around the actual act of Rosa's refusal on the bus, but rather creating the circumstances for the act. Instead of altering history, thankfully, the doctor and her companions are merely there to guard the timeline. With the restrictions put in place by the documented history, this is probably the only way to tackle this episode. It's only the only way to tell the story without taking away any of Rosa's agency over her brave actions. And they managed to maintain this agency with the heartbreaking line from the doctor, we have to not help her. Uh, Some discussion could be had about whether her having people on the bus with whom she felt safe with would influence her actions, or if by giving her a support system it changes the strength and conviction that it would have taken to refuse to move seats. Uh, The bus driver did have a history with African-American people, and Rosa herself, we see it in the episode, he historically was also known to carry a gun on him at all times, so that's terrifying. Uh, But we just want to bring up the fact that if she knew people on the bus, does it change the spirit of the action? The episode allows you to react to her heroism, rather than the episode being about the doctor's actions, it is about Rosa's. And we think the episode was viewed, you could almost view it as a gift to all the people of color in the fandom as the show has suffered from a lack of diversity in its history and has shied away from tackling race head on even when it's had the chance. Yeah, it has been dealt with in various capacities. Both Martha Jones and Bill Potts had an episode that touched on race, um, human nature, family of blood episode, and thin ice respectively. However, it's the first time that it's been tackled almost as a villain in the show, and we have to mention that 
In the past, whether or not they choose to tackle race has been spotty. The doctors also told Martha, like, oh, it's totally cool. No one's even going to notice that you're a black woman walking around in this time. So uh, this time, however, the villain Grasco is literally the embodiment of racism and prejudice. His only goal is stopping the civil rights movement. Hopefully this far in the future, we care a lot less about the color of people's skin. Maybe speciesism is a thing, but... uh, It doesn't make for a very nuanced character. However, it was more important to the episode to achieve the metaphor that they did. And we think it's important to note that this story wasn't told until there was a female doctor. Rosa Parks is the story of a black woman. We often get feminist stories about white women or race stories about black men. But I think Chibnall had the right mix with both a female doctor and racial diversity amongst her companions to tackle this and have it land solidly, not feel oppressive or patronizing. I don't think it could have been done with the same deafness with a white male doctor. I mean, she's still white, but she had some (laughs) companions at least. True. Uh, sometimes I have to remind myself that this is a children's show, or they keep so they keep telling me. A children's show full of sexual innuendos. <laughs> and um, all these episodes where the doctor travels back in time aren't just fun flashes to the past. They are also learning tools for the audience. And in general, the show does a really good job researching and incorporating historical accuracy for its characters, including its historical women. Always room for improvement. Um, but uh, particularly with the women's, some of the women's reactions to the doctor, it's obviously a thing for us. Uh, but I can say that I've learned from the episodes. I didn't know who Madame de Pompadour even was. I only vaguely knew Agatha Christie's past. And if you critically watch the episodes, the doctor constantly alludes to the life events of his character throughout the entirety of the episode. It's a great way to learn about history through pop culture. It makes learning fun. It's edutainment. But as always in media, you have to watch how you're portraying women. It's especially important when you're writing to fill in the blanks or just create a character of a real woman. Not everyone watching will necessarily know what is fact and what is fiction. Like I learned who Madame de Pompadour was for the first time in Doctor Who, and that was great. I learned something, but I also learned that she was a horny mistress, but that's not really her whole thing. Um, So sometimes an episode story gives the wrong impression of the real story, but um, in some of the episodes, giving new life to a historical woman is a great way to add to her representation in pop culture. Like, now I think Agatha Christie could really solve mysteries, and Queen Elizabeth can handle herself one-on-one with an enemy. Nefertiti doesn't suffer fools. The episode Rosa probably remains the best example here of how to tell the woman's story, incorporate the show's own sci-fi elements, but really keep all of her incredible accomplishments, both accurate and most importantly, her own. Okay, that's (laughs) it for us. So we do have some time left for discussion, but just before we get to that, we'll plug our stuff. Um, Our podcast, (laughs) Doctors, Companions, it's on iTunes and places, um, or just find us on Twitter and say hi. And uh, subscribe and stuff. We are. Yeah. We just finished. So it's a rewatch podcast. So we just finished season 10. Yeah. And we don't want to go into season 11 yet. We're so not ready. It's too soon. Um, so we're going to do some different episodes. Like we're talking about classic Who episodes. And we're going to like revisit some stuff. Just like not in order. Like by theme, theme. or by character. Yeah. Anyway. We also really want to quickly mention we're doing another panel tomorrow at 3 p.m. Brave Girls Break the Mode. Studio Ghibli's Heroes. So if there's any Ghibli fans there, come check us out. 
Yay. Okay, so back to Doctor Who. Does anyone want to add anything to the discussion? We have say, seven Five minutes left. <laughs> Hi. So Madame de Pompadour actually did keep a home garden. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, did everyone hear that? <laughs> oh my god, this is warming my heart. Um, she said that Madame de Pompadour did have a garden and she cooked meals for the king. That makes me him. love her so much more. I love that they were like, yes, she was the mistress, but also they were like just super best friends and just stayed friends for the rest of their life. I know. It's really sweet. Hi. Um, which, why which historical women are chosen by the writers. Um, as we said, like the virgin queen thing, I think that's part of why they chose her. Or like, honestly, the queens and stuff, it's like, well, they're British, they freaking love their monarchy. <laughs> I assume they're just going to get to like through every queen and everyone. Um, yeah, I think that's part of it. It has to be somebody that is well known enough in culture that... Mm-hmm. Uh, they can structure an episode, although Madame de Pompadour is maybe, like, I, we didn't know about her, but maybe we were just... Um, so I think, like, you don't want it to be somebody, like, totally obscure, because in that case, like, you could probably just create your own character. Mm-hmm. Um, but you... you the, the trouble is picking somebody in where you're able to, like, make a story out of it, because I think talking about the Rosa one, like... That was difficult. It's really challenging like, when every minute of her day we know what happened. Yeah. So it's almost um, like why bother with that one? And then, like we said, it's like this fine line of like long enough ago that you can put stuff in, but not so long ago that it's like you got nothing. Like right. Nefertiti, they had to take her out of her time because like they didn't know enough really for him to visit her. I feel like so they took this idea of her and put her on a spaceship with dinosaurs. And. Also, someone like uh, Queen Victoria, I think they just wanted a supernatural type of episode, Mm -hmm. and they were able to fit that in. So they probably mix and match, I imagine, in the writer's room a little bit. And it might just be somebody who just is really, like, obsessed with somebody. Yeah, I feel like Moffat just had a thing for Madame de Pompadour. (laughs) Does anybody have any, like, ideas of other historical women that would be fun on Doctor Who? Do you want to share some stories? Yes. Yes. But then River was also like pretending to be Cleopatra. So I'm like, was that just River you're talking about? Yeah. Cinderella. Yeah. With Indianapolis, I think that would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm already fascinated. Nice. I love a that, woman that rebels against men. I'm just <laughs> that sounds actually like a really good episode. And they do, yeah, they do love monarchies. So. Yeah. Yes. Oh my god, that's so perfect. Yes. We have hired you now as a writer. (laughs) (laughs) 
But they would do probably like Agatha Christie, like put her in a story like her story. Like that would probably, be yeah. some sort of weird alien creation Frankenstein thing. That would be fun. <laughs> Write that for us, please. <laughs> Hank. I'm amazed they haven't done the Steel with Oh, wow. Yeah. Prehistoric uh, British figure. She was a, a warrior queen. She was. That's about all we know about her. That's but really but yeah. because of that, they'd be able to like really... Yeah, you know, create. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think she showed up in a Doctor Ten comic book. Oh, cool. Oh, really? that. And that in the red coat there. Oh, hey. I, I don't have a specific suggestion for what they should do. I just find like it's all. I mean, I get that it's a British show. It's always too British. It's yeah. That is true. They need to go like east to like China or Japan or like yeah. some like Native American or something. Yes. Yes. I actually really enjoyed that episode that this season. Episode. That was like the best one. Yeah. In this season, yeah. In this mediocre season. <laughs> yeah. Yes, definitely. Oh, that'd be good, yeah. She was great as Empress of, and she was basically like, you know, Catherine the Great, and everybody knows her story, how uh, leader of an empire type of thing she was. Uh, Ramp that up to 11. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be amazing to give. That would be an amazing story to do, both for the diversity in the cast, you would have to have the diversity in the story, because it's not all England again. And it's part of their diversity there's problem. There's a historical thing too that, again, we don't know a whole lot about, especially North America. Or, yeah, it sounds or, like a great or, way to... talking about Empress Wu, just so everyone yeah. knows. That sounds like a great char- character person to, like, where we don't know that much about her. And also, she's known for being, like, a badass, like, tough ruler. But to give her, like, an actual human side... That's yeah. what this kind of episode can do for these historical figures. Like, you just know, like, what they did, and you assume that they were, like, an asshole for, like, taking over, <laughs> for, like, invading and stuff like that, or just from, like, their acts that you hear of. But doing stuff like this, putting historical people in pop culture, like, allows also, us to see them as real people. Yeah. It also raises our interest, of course, in them, right? Yeah. 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 We have one minute left. Anything to add? <laughs> did apparently yeah um yeah that was in my like Marilyn Monroe yeah that he married Marilyn again I feel like it's men writing stories about like (laughs) what they wish they could do like marry Marilyn Monroe yeah all right we have to wrap up if you guys are interested in our other panel and stuff we have like little handouts so you don't forget but we're done thank you all for coming Good job.